0: Open your Bibles with me to the book of Proverbs. We're going to move away from our Zechariah study this morning. Just I want to talk to you a little bit about why we do missions the way that we do and why I am going to Egypt and maybe a little overview of what I'm going to be teaching these men. Proverbs chapter 22. And look at verse 28. Proverbs chapter 22. In verse 28, the Bible says, Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. Look at chapter 23 and verse 10. Remove not the old landmark and enter not into the fields of the fatherless. Remove not the old landmark and enter not into the fields of the fatherless. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we live in a time where doctrine has been diminished to such an extent that people don't really even know what it means anymore. And so, Father, help us this morning to have a good understanding of who we are at Grace Baptist and the mission that you have given us. Lord, help us to be people of your book. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes people wonder why, as a matter of fact, if I talk to people in the community... And I tell them that I'm going to Africa to train a hundred pastors. They, they often say, why would you do that? What, what do we have that they need? It's such an interesting thing. Missions has become, in much of Christianity, when you hear about someone taking a missions trip, what they're going to do is they're going to go and build a house. Or work on a church building or dig a well. Now, building houses and, and restoring church buildings, digging wells, those are profitable things. Would you all agree with that? Uh, Wade, or Brent New and I and some others went over to Scotland and we actually uh, remodeled the hallway of an old church in Scotland. But we also gave the gospel to people while we were there. The work on the church building was important because Jim Mails, our missionary there, needed help. And we were guys who knew how to do that stuff. And it, it was fun. It was a blessing. I'll never forget. We went into a store. Brent's on vacation, so I'll tell this story. We went on the store, and Brent, you know, six 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 seven, he's this big, and he had on his red Houston wind shirt. We're in Scotland. And so he was walking around the, the store, and there was just the workers that were there. And so I left... And as I left, I poked my head through the door, and I said, Brent, sweetie, bring the bags. I'll be over here. And nobody looked at me. They all looked at Brent. (laughs) He just stood there like that. He's much bigger than me, so I thought he was going to kill me, but it was really funny. And when you have those times together on missions trips as guys, it's a blast, and we we have a wonderful time. But the purpose of the missions trip is the mission of the New Testament church, not the mission of a construction company or a food pantry. It's very interesting how the concept of missions has changed, and most of you know. As a matter, let's let's just do this. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter thirteen. Why do we do missions the way that we do? And I, I know it's too late, but keep Proverbs twenty-two and twenty-three. Um. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the famous charity passage. Most of the time when people think of charity, they think of giving money to the poor, giving food to the poor. Is that right? So look what the Bible says in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 1, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I it becomes a sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. Now, Let's just go on. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. Do you see that? Let's read that line together. Everybody out loud. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. So I could give everything I have to the poor... And that would not be charity. So what's happened in Christianity, we have a non-biblical view of charity. Do you remember when um, Jesus was being worshipped with the, the perfume and Judas wanted to take that money and feed the poor? What did Jesus Christ say? The poor you will always have with you. So imagine... Me, trying to go to Egypt and meet the financial needs of all of the people represented there, people from Lebanon and Syria and Jordan and Iraq and and Sudan, and they're going to be pastors from all of those regions. I cannot meet their financial needs. I cannot do that. But that's not what I'm there to do. We're not there to make them Americans. We're not there to bring them American prosperity. What we are there to do is teach the word of God. That's what we are there to do. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 11. You know, let's start in verse 1. I therefore, Ephesians four one. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. That's our mission. We're supposed to walk like we believe what we believe. So there's a difference between going to church and accepting a confession of faith and saying, yes, I am a Baptist or I am, and name the church. There's a difference between that and, and living out your faith in the world. So our mission is to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called, and we are called to be God's people in the world. you all agree with that? Look at the next verse. How do we do that? With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. So as I go into these men, I can't go in there as the great white hope. Amen? These are men of God who have suffered so much more than I could ever dream of suffering, and so as I go in there, I need to go in there lowly, humbly. Amen. It's very important that we understand how the work of the Lord is to be done. Verse three, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now here's where Christian missions breaks down. See, what happens is people look out over the landscape of the world and they see the need. And their heart of compassion overwhelms their love of truth. Let me say this again. Their heart of compassion overwhelms their love of truth. So here, I am to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith I'm called. That's my mission. And I'm supposed to do that in lowliness. I'm supposed to do that in humility. That's the way that I'm supposed to do it. And I'm supposed to endeavor to keep the peace with the people that I'm teaching. Can y'all agree with that? This is, we're, we're getting the heartbeat of what biblical missions is. But notice what it says. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now, here's the problem. People want to have unity at the expense of truth. There's a desire for unity... At the expense of truth. And here's this word it's called compromise. And that's what people expect us to do. But isn't it interesting that it's always the people who have the truth that are expected to compromise? How about the people without the truth compromise by accepting the truth? Let's go on. Let's see if God has anything to say about our unity. There are many bodies and many spirits. Even even as you are called in your own personal calling, your Lord, your faith, your baptism, any God at all. Did Did I read the text wrong? See, we have an exclusive faith. We have an exclusive message. We have an exclusive savior. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the father, but by me. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all. That is our faith. So unity can never be gained at the expense or at the cost or at the negation of the truth. Amen? Are you with me? So why do I go? Why am I going to Africa to teach these people? Why do we care about what they believe? Because according to the book of Ephesians, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, go to verse 11. And he gave some apostles. I'm not an apostle. And some prophets. I'm not a prophet. And some evangelists. Evangelists are the missionaries that are there. And some pastors and teachers. The pastor-teacher is the same role. That's me. I'm a pastor-teacher. What is my job? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry... For the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, the job of the pastor is to teach people the word of God. Are you with me on that? Look at the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. Look at verse 1. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business." But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The ministry of the word. What is the ministry of the word? That is teaching people the word of God. That's my job. That's that's what I am called to do. And the reason that we have deacons, the reason, you deacons stand up. All of you deacons, would you stand up? All right, no, Justin's out of town at a wedding. Ed is in junior church, I believe. All right, and Doug is in junior church. So, thank you guys, you can be seated. What we have these men for is caring for the ministry, the needs of the church here, while I am preaching and teaching the Word of God. That's the structure of the church, and that's what we are to do. So, as that happens, as I am ministering the Word, what am I supposed to do? The Bible says, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. And what's that next word? Doctrine. What is that word? Doctrine. So what is doctrine? Doctrine is God's truth in God's words. God's truth in God's words. Trigonometry is important. I don't even know what it is, but I have been told that it is important. Trigonometry is important, but it's not vital. How many of you do not know trigonometry? Would you raise your hands? You do not know trigonometry. How many of you are going to heaven? Would you raise your hands? You see, the knowledge of trigonometry is not important, is not uh, vital. It's important. If you want to fly an airplane, if you want to do any of those kinds of things, you need to have trigonometry. If you enjoy driving a car or any of the things that, that have to do with engineering, or any of the, you need to understand trigonometry or the, the, you, you benefit from it. So praise God for that. But you don't have to have any of those things to go to heaven. The doctrine of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's vital to whether or not a person goes to heaven. Are you all with me on that? You all with me? So the the, the teaching that God wants us and expects us to do is a different level than general education. It's biblical training. That's the heartbeat behind what we are to do. So the first thing that, let's go back to the book of Proverbs and look at that. Proverbs 22 and Proverbs 23. So, Proverbs 22 and verse 28, remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. And then chapter 23 and verse 10, remove not the old landmark and enter not into the fields of the fatherless. So, what these landmarks were, remember God gave to Israel the land and he divided up the land by tribes. And you, if you weren't allowed to sell it, you weren't allowed to give it up, if you lost it due to a debt on the year of Jubilee, you got it back. God had designed who was going to live where in that land. And that ancient landmark, that old landmark, that identified those property boundaries. That's what's being spoken of. So look at chapter 23 and verse 10 again, and notice what it says. It says, Remove not the old landmark, and enter not into the fields of the fatherless. So those who were not a part of a family... They didn't have access to that land. So if you're removed to the landmark, you are just as if you were not a part of that family. For us, as believers, as Christians, look at Acts chapter 2. Let's look at what our landmarks are. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. So our landmark, our foundational landmark, is the apostles' doctrine. Are you with me on that? It is the apostles' doctrine. So everything that we do is based on the the fact that Jesus Christ established the church. Let's look at that. Go to Matthew chapter 16. All right, look at verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, that's Elijah, and others Jeremiah, that's Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, of course, Roman Catholicism teaches that that uh, Jesus said that he was going to build the church on Peter. That's not what the Bible is teaching. It's the confession that Peter made. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And and we understand that's what the Bible is teaching. Jesus Christ is announcing that he was going to establish his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. That's what's called church perpetuity. Now, young people, I know that this might seem a little boring to you, but it's really important that you know why we're doing what we're doing. So now go to Ephesians chapter 3. Look at verse 20. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Aren't you glad he's able to do that? Look at verse 21. Unto him, that's God the Father, be glory in the what? The church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages World without end. Amen. So what God said is Jesus told us he was going to start his church. And then God would receive glory in that church through Jesus Christ throughout all of the next ages. That's what is going to happen. And I believe that that's true. Do you all believe that that's true? Now, what did Jesus think about the church? Go to Ephesians chapter 5. And look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now look at what this says. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the creeds. Is that what it says? Oh, by the washing of water by the confessions. By the washing of water by the college of cardinals. By the washing of water, by the Baptist Association. No, no. By the word. By the word. It's so important that we understand that Jesus Christ established the church. So the church began with Christ. But then we didn't really understand what the church was. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Look at verse 1. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the what? The mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words. Whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Now look at this, verse 5. Now we saw this in, in, at the end of the chapter, these ages which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy, what? Apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Remember, we're continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And what is it? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, Whereas I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power, unto me who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, look at this, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent... That now unto the principalities and powers, that's that's the spiritual world, that's the angels in heavenly places, might be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. So here is what we are to do. God has said, Jesus said he was going to start his church, and then he gave the information about the church to the apostle Paul. Are you all with me on this? So what are we supposed to do? We are to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's what we are to do. Jesus Christ started his church. Jesus Christ promised to preserve his church throughout all ages. Are you all with me on this? Okay, so here's where this becomes vital. Pastor, why are you going to Egypt to teach people about church history? And why you? Why would you do that? Well, you know, I wrote with Dalton the Why Baptist book several years ago, and they translated that into Arabic. And so that's been distributed all over the Middle East now. It's crazy. And so they wanted me to come and talk about that. And then, you know, that I have either written or edited 24 books on church history now. And so we have this work that we've done that as a church, we want to share with as many people as possible. Amen. But why is church history important? Why is the history of the development of doctrine important? Because Jesus Christ is coming back for his church. And Jesus cares about the church and the way the church is run. Look at the book of Colossians chapter 1. And look at verse 18, speaking about Jesus. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So Jesus Christ is the head of the church. There is no human head of the Christian church. Are you all with me on that? And he has no substitute. There is no one in his place. So let me talk to you about why this is important. Just for a few minutes and we'll be done. So Jesus Christ established the church. In the early church, sometimes people ask, what did the early church believe? Well, the early church believed exactly what we believe, because they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Sometimes people have this idea that we have a different faith because it's been influenced by so many people. Well, that's true if you have a church with a human head. If you have a church with Christ as the head, and your sole authority in the church is the word of God, then you will have the same faith as those early believers when Christ and the apostles were establishing the church. Are you all with me on this? Now, now let me say this. We have formulated the way that we express doctrine over the years to refine things. There's no doubt about that. But I can go back and I can read people like Tertullian from the 200s. Uh, You can read things from Cyprian. You can read things from these early believers who were, uh, uh, Polycarp was trained by the apostle John. So when you read their writings, they believed about the second coming just the way that we believe about the second coming. They believed in the rapture of the church that we're going to be taken out. They believed that Jesus was going to establish a thousand-year reign on the earth. It wasn't until between three and 400 that so many doctrinal errors started entering in. The first error that entered into the churches... You know what? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11... Maybe it's 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Yes. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verse 2. So Paul, of course, concerned about the church at Corinth, writing in verse 2, "...for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband," that's Jesus Christ, amen, "...that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ." God values virginity in young ladies before marriage. That's a value, all right? Verse 3, But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached... Or if you receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. All right? So, notice what he says in verse 6. But though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, but we have been truly made manifest among you in all things. So, why is he worried about this doctrine? Because the doctrine of the Bible is very simple. The gospel of Jesus Christ is very simple. Jesus Christ is God. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. And he died on the cross for your sins and for my sins as our substitute. Second Corinthians 521 says he who knew he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So when Jesus Christ was on the cross, God treated him the way I deserve to be treated so he can treat me the way Christ deserves to be treated. That's the message of the gospel. And it's very simple. He paid my price. Then he was buried for three days and three nights, and he rose from the dead, proving that he was, is, and always will be God. And if you will receive that and believe that, you will be saved. And you can have eternal life based on that. That's the clear message of the scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. That's simple. How many of you agree that that's simple? It's not necessarily easy to believe, but the content of the message is very simple. That's the simplicity of the gospel. The first corruption against the simplicity of the gospel was that they began adding baptism to salvation. And that's called baptismal regeneration. We believe, according to the word of God, we are regenerated, made alive by the blood of Jesus Christ alone. You don't have to be baptized to go to heaven. Praise God. Like my friend Dalton says, there are more Baptists in Texas than will be in heaven. Being a Baptist doesn't take you to heaven. Being baptized doesn't take you to heaven. has nothing to do with whether or not you get to go to heaven. They started being removed from the simplicity of the gospel. And so now, now that started very early. Uh, Tertullian was a Montanist and... He believed, he wrote articles on how you needed to be baptized to be saved, and it wasn't until later in his life that he moved away from that teaching. So that very early on, baptismal regeneration became a problem. But it wasn't until the 400s, so now we wonder, so we as Baptists, we have our baptistry up there, it's so funny. When the construction guys were, were building the church, one of them said, what do you need that tub for? Oh, that's our baptistry. Well, for them, a baptistry is just a little font where they, they sprinkle. It's hard for us to understand that throughout all of history, everyone immersed. So during the Donatist controversy, which started around the 300s in northern Africa, you had, you had the Catholics and the Donatists, and there was a controversy between them. But it wasn't over baptism per se. It was over rebaptism. They all immersed. Everybody immersed them. That's what baptism was. It wasn't until the 400s that a man named Augustine, he decreed for the Christians that sprinkling was okay. They called it therapeutic baptism because there were some people that wanted to be baptized, but they were too sick to be baptized. They couldn't come to church and be immersed. So they were allowed to be baptized at home by sprinkling. And that was important because you had to be baptized to go to heaven. You see how confusing all that becomes? And so what ends up coming from that, Augustine is considered the father of the Roman Catholic Church. That idea of baptism and salvation only being in the church, that that one institution holds salvation, and if you're not in that institution, you can't go to heaven. And the door to that institution was infant baptism. Why did they start baptizing babies? Because you have to be baptized to go to heaven. Augustine believed in what was called an outer ring of hell. He called it limbus infantum. And it was this outer ring of hell where it was a a lesser form of suffering for babies who died without being baptized. You see, all of that is not from the Bible. it's, It's something that's imposed on the scripture. He also introduced the worship of Mary, the veneration of Mary. That didn't start early. That didn't start until around the 400s. He also introduced this allegorized version of interpretation in Scripture that had started with a guy named uh, named Origen, but it was really uh, emphasized in the church through Augustine. And Augustine, he saw the vandals coming and the collapse of the Roman Empire. But remember that you had Constantine. He had become the first Christian, the first Christian emperor. And whether it's the Battle of Milvian Bridge when he became the leader and he saw the banner that said, "In this sign, conquer," or if you move ahead to 325 with the Edict of Toleration, in that Edict of Toleration, though you were approved to be a Christian along with what the state says a Christian is. So the Donatists that I mentioned a minute ago were persecuted. And when you go into all of that, you start to see this development of a theology of the marriage of church and state. So Augustine, he wrote, he saw the collapse of Christianity. And that idea that the church and the state are one, that means that Rome is Christian. That means that you have to be a Roman citizen to be a Christian. You see how all of that stuff happens. Well, when the Vandals came and he saw the collapse of the Roman Empire around him, he wrote a book called The City of God. And that's where he got this concept of a kingdom on earth, and he believed the millennial reign of Jesus Christ began when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so we are living in the millennial kingdom. Isn't it wonderful? We are living in his millennial kingdom, And what we have to do is we have to conquer the world for Christ, either militarily or through missions. And when we conquer the world for Christ, we prepare the world for Jesus Christ to return. And when we make the world good enough, Jesus Christ will come back and rule and reign. Understand, that became the teaching of all of Christianity from 400. Listen. From 400 until probably the 1700s, when people started studying the word of God again on their own and realized the Bible teaches the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words." The Bible says in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, that he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. Satan's going to be bound for a thousand years. And when these thousand years are done, Satan will be released. It's a thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, over and over and over again. That's the theme of the whole Bible that Jesus Christ is going to come to the earth and he is going to take care of the mess on this earth. He is going to come in wrath and judgment and he is going to clean up this earth. So, what are we supposed to do in the meantime? We're supposed to plant churches and teach the Word. That's what we're supposed to do, lead people to Jesus Christ. So let's, let's just finish it up with this. Go to Matthew chapter 28. <clears throat> I'm frustrated. There's so much more I want to say to you, but the clock is always there. Matthew chapter 28, and look at verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to go into all the world and we're supposed to teach, and then we are to baptize, and then we are to teach them all things. So, all right, let me do this little synopsis, and we'll be done. So when the Roman Catholic system took over the state system, and regardless of your nation, if you were a Christian, it was probably a Roman Catholic leader, They forced you to be a part of the state church, and if you were not, they killed you, put you in prison, took your your property away. Um, Now, let me just say this. (laughs) That's not an offensive thing to say. It's just what happened. Are you all with me? It's It's just what happened. So, we all know that October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 complaints, his 95 theses, to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And that's considered the start of what's called the Protestant Reformation. And what is said is that Martin Luther rediscovered the gospel. Martin Luther rediscovered the gospel. He saw that the Bible said the just shall live by faith, and he started teaching that the just shall live by faith. And that began the Protestant Reformation. And that was the rediscovery of the gospel. This is what's said over and over and over again. Now, now understand what I'm telling you here. If the gospel had been lost from 400 A.D. until... 1517 that means no one was saved from 400 AD until 1517 you understand that that's exactly what that's teaching because what everyone had been taught is there is no salvation outside of the church and that you become a child of the church when you're baptized as an infant that's what people had been taught and then Martin Luther comes and says the just shall live by their faith But he never gave up the baptismal salvation. In the Augsburg Confession, in Article 10, he says of baptism that it is necessary for salvation. That's what Martin Luther taught. And so today we still have millions and millions and millions of people that think that they're going to heaven because they were baptized as a baby. How many of you know people who believe that? What we believe is that Jesus Christ promised to preserve his church. Amen? Amen. He promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. That means that ever since Jesus Christ rose from the dead, when he began the New Testament and established the New Testament church and empowered it at Pentecost, and then he ordered it and structured it and propagated it under the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and as the scriptures were disseminated through the world and the churches were established, that at every point of history since then, there have been Bible preaching and teaching churches extant on the globe outside of the corrupt Roman Catholic or Protestant systems. They have been in existence all along. They were hiding and running for their lives, whether they were the Montanists in the 200s, the Novatians in the 300s, the Donatists in the 400s, the Paulicians in the 600s through the 900s, the Albigenses and the Waldensians, the the Anabaptists in Switzerland. There were always people, there have always been, A people who believed in certain things. And they are salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have believed that baptism is for believers. That a person makes a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, just like the Ethiopian eunuch. He's talking to Philip and he sees some water and he says, Here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said to him, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. There was a prerequisite to the baptism. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And they both went down into the water and he baptized him. The prerequisite to baptism is faith everywhere in the Bible. I often say, if you can find a baby being baptized in the Bible, you can show it to me. I'll eat it. Which one? The baby or the Bible? Both. They're not there. It's not there. It's believers' baptism. There have been people who have believed that all through history. They also believed in the separation of church and state, that the state has absolutely nothing to do with the church. They've always believed that. They believe that there are two offices in the church, the pastor and the deacon. There are not cardinals and all of these other offices. There's only the pastor and the deacon. That's what they've always believed. There are two ordinances. They are not sacraments. A sacrament, the basis of a sacrament is that you receive grace from God when you do these things. Grace is completely free. You don't have to do anything except receive it. The word grace means gift. Sacraments are not in the Bible. There are ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's it. Those are the two ordinances. There have been groups of people who have believed that all along, all through history. They also believed in this doctrine. It's called individual soul liberty. And that is that you cannot require someone to believe something. That belief is a choice. I can't make you believe anything. The Bible says, Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We don't don't coerce men. We persuade men. All through history, there have been people who believed in these foundational, doctrinal truths. Now, Praise God that coming out of the Reformation, we became more free eventually. You know, of course, the Protestants persecuted the Baptists just like the, the, the Catholics had. It really wasn't until the United States was established that people had freedom and liberty. And from that point on, now there's religious liberty all the way around the world, and it started here in the United States. So why do we go? And why do we teach? Because here's my question, and I'm done. What if Jesus Christ doesn't return for another hundred years? What if Christ doesn't return for another two or three hundred years? What are the churches going to look like? Now, how many of you know that, that churches are a mess right now? Seriously. Who in the world would think it's okay to ordain homosexuals as pastors? Now, listen, if you have homosexual loved ones, we love them as much as Jesus Christ loves them. Jesus Christ died on the cross for them just like they died on the cross for us heterosexuals. People don't go to hell because they're homosexual, or if that was the case, people would go to heaven because they're heterosexual. They go to hell because they're sinners. But homosexuality is a sin that's clearly called out in the Bible. Just as I couldn't be a pastor if I'm an adulterer, I can't be a pastor if I'm a homosexual. Are you all with me on that? What kind of church says that a homosexual can be the pastor of a church? It's ins- Do you all see it's insane? It's completely ridiculous. Churches are a mess. Why? Listen, it's so important that you get this. Saved people... In obedience to God's word, don't ordain homosexuals. <laughs> when you have people that become church members as babies when they're baptized and never place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for their eternal life, well, then they, then they start practicing this secular egalitarianism that says that lifestyle is just as good as my lifestyle and we need to stop being judgmental and we need to love them. Well, we do need to love them, but the Bible tells us we're supposed to judge these things. You see, these things become so important because if Jesus Christ doesn't return, he expects his people to be faithful in the churches. Now, here's the deal. There are going to be faithful churches until Jesus Christ returns because he promised that. I just want to be a part of that. And so why do we go? We go to teach people because three reasons. Number one, Truth is knowable. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Bondage doesn't come from the truth. Liberty comes from the truth. Truth is knowable. Ignorance is visible. Ignorance is visible. It's visible in our outreach. It's visible in our ministry. It's visible in everything that we do. But obedience is possible. If the Bible is our sole authority and we rightly divide the word of truth, We'll understand what the mission of the church is. We'll understand what the message of the church is. We'll understand what the maturity of a believer looks like. We'll understand every bit of that. But if it all becomes subjective, here's what happens. Then Satan beguiles us from the simplicity that is in Christ. And we start worshiping another Christ. I was on the plane with a lady I've told you she was in charge of discipline at Wright State University, and she was talking about how she likes to take her children to homosexuals' houses so that they can see what what they look like, and she thinks it's what Jesus wants her to do, and I said, that's because you're worshiping, worshiping a Jesus of your own creation. He is not the Jesus of the Bible. It's another Jesus, or another gospel. What's another gospel? That you're baptized to be saved, or that... You just need to do good, and if you're nice to people, God will love you, and you'll go to heaven. That's not the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or another spirit. You think that the Holy Spirit will lead you to do something that is outside of the scriptural mandate. That's not the spirit of the Bible. How do we make sure that our church stays right? How do we make sure that we do that? When we submit ourselves to this, how do we as a church fulfill the great commission to go into the world and teach others? How do we do that? by going and teaching other pastors and training them what the Bible says about what a church is, the ministry function of a local New Testament church. That's what we're to do. Now let me finish it with this. I think I finished it with about four different things, but let me I really am going to try and finish with this. If you're a guest here and you're not familiar with Grace Baptist Church, I, I, I taught the Baptist distinctives one time, and there was a Methodist pastor here, and he said to me, Afterwards, he was really mad, and he pointed at me, and he said, I don't agree with what you said. And I just smiled and said, well, if you did, then you'd be a Baptist. <laughs> is, that, is that fair? This is Grace Baptist Church out here. That's, that's who we are. This is what Baptist teaching and Baptist doctrine is. So it's really important that you understand this. I said at the beginning, salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with being a Baptist. Please understand I am so thankful that we're going to be in heaven with people of every denomination and no denomination who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are not against them. We love them. Are you all with me on that? Anytime you stand up and and, and teach a doctrinal sermon, doctrine always divides. It always divides, and it needs to. So what I wanted to finish with was the statement that salvation is by grace through faith. Secondly, Jesus really does care what the church looks like. Paul wrote it this way, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. He cares about how we behave in the church, and then he taught us church doctrine so we can know how we are to function as we come together and grow and make disciples and wait, patiently wait for the soon return of Jesus Christ. That's what we are doing. That's what I'm going to Egypt to do. Please pray for me as I go. If you're here this morning, and this is all new to you, man, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. If you've never heard anything like this before, I heard someone say one time, your failure to be informed does not make me a wacko. <laughs> Again, basic basic church history. That's this that's the foundation of who we are. But I want you also to know this. Just because we preach an exclusive message doesn't mean that we think we're better than anybody else. We're just beggars showing other beggars where we found bread. It's so important that that you understand that. But our allegiance is not to the culture. Our allegiance is not to any church, creed, or council. Our allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ through His Word. Praise God for that. I hope that you're born again. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal life, Baptist stuff stuff doesn't matter. Church history stuff doesn't matter. The most important thing is that you ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior. He wants to be. He wants to be. And then after you're born again, you need to be discipled. And discipleship is... As you grow in the church, we teach you how to do that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you for all that you've done. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, help us to be faithful to your word and to your mission.